Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, TJ Louis the 14th, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. We have merch at poppantheonpod.com and our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we do weekly bonus episodes of the show, plus so much more, is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Also, gorgeous, gorgeous, My Queer Pop Party is happening on both coasts, first in New York on Saturday, March 9th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick, and then again in LA on March 23rd at Los Globos in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Tickets for both of those will be available in the show notes of this episode, so I hope to see some of y'all at Gorgeous Gorgeous. And as was announced in a special installment of this show on Monday, we are doing our next Pop Pantheon live show in Brooklyn on April 22nd. It is called Pop Pantheon Live, Tortured Poets, and the State of Taylor Mania. And it will all be going down at the Bell House in Gowanus with a absolute murderer's row of Pop Pantheon fave special guests, including Hunter Harris, Brittany Spanos, and Nora Princiati. I am so excited about this show. This is happening mere days after Taylor's 11th studio album, The Tortured Poets Department, drops. So Nora, Brittany, Hunter, and I are going to be talking about the new album, and we're also going to be using that as a platform to talk about the broader state of Taylor's unending mass cultural saturation over the last couple of years, how it's all functioning, the impact she's having on pop, and whether there will ever be an end to this moment of Taylor. And I hope that all my New York niche legends and anybody that wants to make a little pilgrimage to New York will come out and see us at that show. There's also going to be some other stuff happening around that event that is TBA. So keep your ears out. You could make maybe a whole little weekend into the early week trip of it. But that's Pop Pantheon Live, Tortured Poets, and the State of Taylor Mania featuring myself again, Rolling Stones, Britney Spanos, Every Single Albums, Nora Princiati, and Hung Up's Hunter Harris at the Bell House in Brooklyn on April 22nd. The link to buy tickets to that is in the show notes of this episode as well. And they're also available on poppantheonpod.com and I will post them on social media. Wow, are we excited for that? And am I excited for this week's episode? So some of you might be a little bit surprised because all of my OG listeners will remember that the first episode ever of Pop Pantheon was about Ariana Grande. However, this year, Russ and I have been taking a look at some of those very early episodes in which the podcast was pretty different. I was making it all by my lonesome, alone in my apartment with no idea what I was doing and no idea like what people would want to listen to about this show. So that little 50 minute episode, while I'll always have love in my heart for it and always will thanks Stephen J. Horowitz, my friend, for taking a risk and being Pop Pantheon's first ever guest. Felt like it was not quite enough to encompass the impact in the current pop firmament of Ariana Grande. So here we are today, about one week away from the release of Ariana's seventh studio album, Eternal Sunshine, launching a two-part series on Ariana Grande that will take a look at her entire career in the style that we now do, and also will reassess her Pantheon ranking at the end of next week's second installment. This week's episode will cover Ariana's early life, rise to fame, and first three studio albums, Yours Truly, My Everything, and Dangerous Woman, 
Next week's episode will cover everything from 2018's Sweetener through 2019's Thank You Next, 2020's Positions, and her Pop Pantheon ranking. And then, of course, the following Monday on Patreon, we will be discussing her new album, Eternal Sunshine. So without further ado, here is the first installment of our new series on Ariana Grande. Back in March 2021, we released the first episode ever of this podcast, a 50-ish minute installment of the show that I will most certainly never listen to again about Ariana Grande. And while I'll always have love for Pop Pantheon's adorable first step, we, our audience, and Ariana demand more now. Indeed, Ariana is one of the most emblematic pop stars working today, an artist who seems to straddle worlds. On the one hand, by leading with her grand four-octave singing range and cranking out a cavalcade of ever-larger hits for over a decade. She's a throwback to a pre-social media era of monocultural pop star virtuosity and unattainable mystique. And yet, on the other, over the course of those 10 plus years, she's become the diva whose music most fluidly interfaces with the ultra-contemporary way we speak to one another on the internet, through text, and in therapy, creating works that magically transform trauma by swaddling it in self-care. So weirdly enough, Ariana Grande is both completely out of step with the demands of the current pop landscape, and also somehow the progenitor of many of those demands. And an artist that complex, not to mention, with a heavy load of smash hits for such a famously little person, deserves a bit more than 50 minutes of our attention. Ariana Grande was born on June 26, 1993 in Boca Raton, Florida. Her mother, Joan, was a communications exec, and her father, Edward, owned a graphic design firm. As a child, Ariana did children's theater, and by her freshman year in high school, she was cast in the Broadway musical 13. The next year, she landed a supporting role on Victorious, a Nickelodeon sitcom about a singer portrayed by Victoria Justice. While filming the show, Ariana hired a vocal coach and started posting Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey covers on YouTube. That caught the attention of Republic Records chairman Monty Littman, who signed her and helped launch her first single, The Bubblegum Diddy, Put Your Hearts Up, in 2011. The song went gold, but Ariana was unhappy with its ultra-glossy, anonymous pop sound and went back to the drawing board, retreating to television to film a season of Victoria's spin-off Salmon Cat while working on her debut record. In 2013, she dropped Yours Truly, a surprisingly auteurish album for a then-largely-unknown aspiring starlet stuck in the grind of the child star machine. Truly, largely produced by 80s and 90s AC Radio King Babyface, skillfully married 90s R&B pop in the style of her hero Mariah, and elements of mid-century doo-wop and soul that put a glossy sheen on the retro micro-movement of the preceding years characterized by Adele and Amy Winehouse. It was led by a collaboration with Ariana's future boyfriend, the rapper Mac Miller, The Way, which debuted at number 10 on the Hot 100 and went on to sell 3 million copies.
With her signature high ponytail, sugary sweet image, and studied fixation on showy runs and melisma, many in the press initially pegged Ariana, often dismissively, as a quote, mini Mariah. However, yours truly received positive notices from critics who appreciated her steeped diva references, undeniably impressive vocal ability and range, and the album's cohesive point of view. Truly's chaste sweetness and R&B leanings also worked as effective counter-programming to the EDM movement of the preceding five years, arriving just as the general public was curdling on the outra antics and slamming dance beats of Katy Perry and Lady Gaga. The album went number one, earned Ariana her first platinum certification, and produced two more minor hits, Baby Eye and Right There. But while that record made for a modest arrival on the scene, Ariana clearly had uh, <laughs> grander ambitions. Those were laid threadbare simply by looking at the collaborator list for her follow-up, on which she quickly went to work. Babyface was replaced by a cadre of the most surefire hitmakers of the century, Max Martin, Shellback, Benny Blanco, and Ilya, among others, who expanded Ariana's sound to include EDM, pulsating R&B, and a decidedly more bombastic take on her signature allusions to pop R&B's past. Released in 2014, My Everything heralded the arrival of a new pop hit machine, producing a cascading stream of some of the most memorable radio hits of the middle of the decade. There was the life-affirming floor filler Break Free, produced by Martin and Zed, which hit number four, the diva summit Bang Bang with Jessie J and Nicki Minaj, which got to number three, the sultry weekend collab Love Me Harder, which peaked at number seven, and the tender anthemic One Last Time, which got to number 13. Everything's biggest and best single, though, was its first. Problem, an homage to the early 2000s strutting horn-filled R&B bangers of Jennifer Lopez and Beyonce, and also somehow Wait the Whisper song by the Ying Yang Twins featured both one of the lutest sax riffs in Top 40 history and an Iggy Azalea verse that, despite its best efforts, couldn't ruin this monster of a track. The song peaked at number two on the Hot 100 and firmly ensconced Ariana as pop's newest superstar. Hey. My Everything debuted at number one and went double platinum. That same year, Ariana made a play for the modern Christmas canon with Santa Tell Me, which eventually went four times platinum and, in 2023, became the first Christmas song released this millennium to reach one billion streams. She also encountered her first quote-unquote scandal when she was caught on CCTV in a Los Angeles donut shop, licking a donut and muttering to her then-boyfriend, dancer Ricky Alvarez, that she quote, hated America. While pretty featherweight as a controversy, this event, its fallout, and the way Ariana attempted to respond to it in her her work and image set the template for the future of her career in which she'd become masterful at warping interest in her personal life as well as her struggles, foibles, and tragedies into her music. In 2015, Ariana released the Max Martin-produced Just A Bit Too Problem-esque single, Focus, as the lead single of her third studio album, but ultimately scrapped the song despite its number seven peak. Five months later, she returned with the slinky rock ballad Dangerous Woman, the title alone of which seemed to comment on both the donut scandal as well as her right of passion passage from child starlet to sexually embodied adult pop star. The song debuted in the top 10 and sold more than 4 million copies. 2016's album of the same name opened at number two and went double platinum, producing two more hits, including the skeezy electro-pop heat rock Into You and the top five light reggae groover side to side featuring Nicki Minaj. The cat 
After Dangerous Woman's release, Ariana played Penny Pingleton in the NBC television broadcast Hairspray Live, collaborated with John Legend on the title track for the 2017 remake of Beauty and the Beast, and headed out on tour in support of her album. On May 22nd, 2017, Ariana's concert at Manchester Arena was the target of a suicide bombing as fans were leaving the venue, causing 22 deaths and hundreds of injuries. Grande suspended the remainder of her tour, choosing instead to return to Manchester for a televised benefit concert recruiting Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, and Justin Bieber to raise $23 million in aid for victims and their families. The event was an international tragedy and one that forever altered the course of Ariana's persona, narrative, music, and career, a pivot that will be covered in next week's episode. Here with me to discuss Ariana Grande's early life, rise to fame, and first run of pop superstardom is pop music critic at the LA Times, Michael Wood. Okay, so I am here with pop music critic at the LA Times, Michael Wood. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. I am a huge fan, as I was just telling you. And I was happy to discover, although not surprised to discover, that I believe you have reviewed every single Ariana Grande album that has ever been released. Is that news to you? I mean, this is the advantage of being old, is that you <laughs> were around for all the moments. So I'm sure that is true, but I can only take credit because I am old. <laughs> Honestly, Ariana Grande is not that old, so I don't know if that's what that speaks to exactly, but okay. My question for you is, what were your expectations when you first encountered Ariana Grande as a new artist in the era of her first album? And did you see the sort of level of success that she's had, the heights her artistry has reached in recent times, the length of her career? Thinking about where we are now on the precipice of her seventh album, where she seems probably bigger than she's ever been. There's a lot of anticipation here. She's one of the biggest pop stars working today. Was that evident to you upon first encounter? I think in terms of the level of talent, yes. It was clear that she was a very gifted singer and a very distinctive singer, but almost so distinctive that she seemed not particularly flexible in those early days. So I don't know if I would have said, huh, this is going to be someone who's around for more than a decade, just because I maybe thought that what she was doing on yours truly, she would have sort of exhausted that. And then I don't know if I could tell, oh, she's going to do this different thing and this different thing and develop this and evolve in this way. So yes and no, I suppose. Talent, for sure. Flexibility, mm, not so sure. That's really interesting. And I tend to agree. I think one of the things that I've been sort of mulling over, and I'm curious your thoughts on as I've been prepping to record these episodes is Ariana as both somehow out of step with pop trends and yet also one of the premier agenda setters for pop at the same time. I feel like she's kind of hard for me to position in my mind because I feel as though her particular set of talents don't necessarily feel like the primary currency of most pop stars, especially as they emerged to us originally, notably The Voice. I mean, singers with giant singing voices. Yes, we have Adele. There's a few outliers, but like that generally over the last 10 years has not really been like a premium for pop stars. I often feel like an explicit show-offy version of virtuosity is not something that's particularly valuable to the contemporary pop star. Not to say that contemporary pop stars are not virtuosic in their own ways. Obviously, Taylor Swift is a virtuous songwriter. All of these artists are virtuosos in their own way, but that kind of showboaty virtuosity that I feel like I associate with Ariana, especially in the era of her work we're going to talk about today, 
felt out of step in some ways. And yet at the same time, I feel as though she's perfectly suited for the moment in the way that she's seemed so malleable. She's been able to morph through lots of different genres, lots of different iterations of who she is as a pop diva, like what her persona is. And then as her career's developed, maybe more so in the episode we're going to talk about next week, but has really developed a songwriting lingua franca that feels incredibly in conversation with the way we speak, the way we think about our emotions and feelings today, the way that we text each other, the way that we are in therapy and talk like we're in therapy or whatever. So I've been trying to kind of like wrap my head around the ways that Ariana is both kind of an outlier pop star for this generation and yet somehow feels perfectly matched for this time. Like, does that ring true to you? For sure. There's something paradoxical. You are right that the center of her artistry is this big voice that she has, which in the 90s, in the era of Whitney and Mariah, which I'm sure we'll get to, that was the signal attribute of a pop star. The excellence of someone's voice now is so devalued in pop. It's so decentered. It is not what a narrative revolves around anymore. And yet that remains a crucial part of Ariana Grande's whole approach. And yet, as you say, she's also more fluent in internet ease than maybe anybody else on her level. Drake, maybe. Sure, sure. But of the big pop divas, she's kind of the one. Yes. And I mean that in the sense of literally the words she uses, the slang. Mm -hmm. I mean that in terms of the way that she understands how to wall off her private life, but it's a porous wall, right? Yes, right. There's always this sense that she's keeping something private, but also we know an incredible amount about her private life, especially compared to somebody like, I don't know, Billie Eilish springs to mind. Right. I mean, I was amused, you know, in this new single, Yes And, when she's like sweating the audience, like, why are you guys so concerned with who I'm with? I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> because you have trained us to care. For sure. That's been her whole career. I mean, literally, Thank You Next goes through a roll call of her exes. Yes. So a little bit, the lady doth protest too much on that one. Yes. So I think that the intrigue that she's been able to summon and tease out over the years, that strikes me as incredibly modern and makes her a creature of the internet, even at the same time as her voice feels almost like a pre-internet specimen. A hundred percent. And she made her name, at least initially, on making music that specifically called back to that period that you were discussing earlier. She made that her identity, which I think was very wise and gave the music and persona and vibe like a bespoke feeling in a moment where that really mattered in terms of establishing herself. I think it made her perceived as a cut above or having a level of vision that your average emergent starlet does not come into right away necessarily. 100%. I mean, I think she was looked at as an auteur much more quickly. Exactly. You think about like a Demi Lovato, right. a huge voice, but it's never been looked at as an auteur. No. Or even like people that have discovered their auteurship in front of us, basically. That seems like a much more obvious tract for your average pop star. Of course, there's some people like Lady Gaga or whatever that arrived to you kind of fully formed in that way, but that's rarer, I think. The last thing I'll say before we get 
get into the details that this is all making me think of is Ariana also straddles two ecosystems of pop stardom, one being the old model of monocultural pop stardom and the new model of massive niche pop stardom that we currently exist in. I kind of work on this theory that probably has some holes in it, but I think generally holds up that even big pop stars, and I mean this about literally I see Ariana as the linchpin turning point of this, are niche artists. If you think about a lot of the pop stars that have established themselves after Ariana, and you brought up Billie Eilish, I think there is no better example of this. Probably, we could say, is one of, if not the biggest pop star of her generation, and yet feels niche. There's so many people out there that have never heard a Billie Eilish song. She exists in a giant vacuum with a lot of fans, but it still feels not monocultural in the same way that the pop stars of the previous generation and many generations before you know, from the Beatles through, I would say, Gaga, Katy Perry, Rihanna, Beyonce generation were monocultural fixations. In that era, just prior to Ariana's rise, let's say 08 to 13-ish, you had the emergence of a large number of monocultural old school, as we look at it now, pop figures that were coming up with massive hit singles, one after the other after the other. Justin Bieber is another one. There's a lot of people from that generation. I feel like Ariana is the last member of that kind of pop star before the internet and social media just fully took hold and like nicheified our culture. She kind of like slid through the door at the last moment and has been really effectively able to operate both as the old school big tent four quadrant pop star with the celebrity narrative and the massive singles and the albums of increasing commercial viability over a course of many years and also play to the era of the idiosyncratic sort of internal pop star that has been what's sort of taken hold in the post Instagram, TikTok, whatever era of pop stardom now. So she like straddles those worlds, I feel like too. I think you can think of her as having the sort of natural skill set of the old guard. Right. But the digital know-how or just an instinct that puts her with this new class. You'd mentioned that maybe she was the last of that earlier guard, and I think that's right. Or you can think of her as the first of the subsequent class. But yes, I agree that she is a very crucial bridge figure between these two generations of, especially, specifically a female pop star. Agree, absolutely. All right, so let's go back a little bit, rewind. Ariana has an interesting backstory. She's a child star, and you brought up Demi Lovato. There's a very tale as old as time feel to some of this story. So can you tell me just in broad strokes a little about Ariana's early life and I guess we can focus primarily on aspects that you feel are important to understanding her as an artist and pop star. I feel like the most crucial thing to understand is that she is a dyed-in-the-wool theater kid. Right. (laughs) Which I mean I think still today informs everything about her music. Right. She grows up in Florida which the Florida of it all might also be relevant here. That's also important. (laughs) Yeah I mean straight up Boca folks. Yeah Boca. Born to Italian-American parents. Her mom works in like communications. Her dad is a graphic design guy. They split up eventually. You know, I was looking back through some old interviews and stuff, and there's this great billboard interview in 2014 where she describes what she was like as a little kid using the phrase dark and deranged, which I think is (laughs) amazing. She says she always wanted to have like a skeleton face paint or a Freddy Krueger mask. And she says she was like a mini Helena Bonham Carter. Wow, obsessed. Yeah. I think the goth 
streak in Ariana is kind of an interesting one that she doesn't play with too much. But once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Wow, that's, that's really true. I never would have thought of that, but that definitely feels weirdly in the mix somewhere on a low burn in the background. Exactly, a creepy low hum. So she acts in community theater. She does that whole thing. She actually gets cast in a Broadway show, this musical called 13. For my first audition, Aaron was just coming out of his and he had been told he got a call back. So he came downstairs to meet me and we went to Dunkin' Donuts and got a chocolate donut. Our parents, they have no idea what to do with themselves. <laughs> they think it's just the craziest thing in the world that two best friends from Boca Raton, Florida are now in a Broadway show together. <laughs> and then that kind of leads eventually to the Nickelodeon world, right. which is obviously a tried and true path for someone with her interests and skill sets. And so she ends up on this show, Victorious, which like every second kid show in the world is about kids out of performing arts high school, <laughs> which is like such an ingenious <laughs> thing for a school to be about because it just allows all these kids to show off their prodigious talents. Absolutely. It's so funny. We literally just made an episode on Demi Lovato and the parallels are very striking. We've done an episode on Miley. These shows about child stars that are starring child stars is this weird meta in some instances scary because in like a demi view you're kind of like wow child stardom was a really big problem for this person ariana doesn't have necessarily that patina over her she seems like more of a survivor of child stardom that's somehow flourished in spite of being a child star but it is fascinating the way that these shows revolve around that concept i had never watched victorious before until i was prepping for this episode i don't know if you've seen it. A bit, a bit. She's not the star, which is really interesting. She's a supporting character, which differentiates her in some ways from these other Disney girls like Selena and Demi and Miley, around which these shows are focused and they're very much the lead and the pressure's on them. I watched some of it in preparation for this. You know, she's a supporting character and she plays almost like a kooky, a little bit daffy comic relief character. And I have to say, I wonder if part of the reason that she's maybe a little bit more grounded and well off than some of those kids, besides maybe just whatever circumstances about her childhood that we don't know about, is because maybe the pressure wasn't on in the same exact way for her. She was a little bit of a sideshow. The last thing I want to say about Victorious, having now spent a good hour or so flipping through it the other day, she is so good. She's very charming. She has really good comedic timing. She's really magnetic on screen and feels like she's having a great time. She's a total natural. It actually surprised me that she hasn't really pushed the acting until obviously now we know she has. But I was very taken with how honestly skilled she is at sitcom. She was very, very good at it. Calling Cad Valentine! Your secret Santa. Oh my god, yay! <laughs> and your Christmas present is your very own cotton candy machine! Whoa. <laughs> 
I have two kids and they were, when they were younger, they were into Sam and Cat. Mm -hmm. It's a spinoff. Yes. I've seen a fair amount of that. And she is really funny. And the whole time you do get the sense that she is in on the joke. Yes. Which is not always the case. Smart. Very smart and very in on it. She's kind of a ditzy character, but quirky too, like somebody's weird aunt, but at the age of (laughs) whatever it is, 16. As you say, she's good. I, I am kind of surprised that she hasn't done more of it. Yes. So what role is music playing in Ariana's life at this time? I mean, who are important influences? I know she's actually spoken about this, but also just from your knowledge as, you know, a pop music connoisseur, who is Ariana absorbing, do you feel like at this time that feels like important foundational understanding for the type of artist that she's aspiring to be, do you think? I think the alpha and the omega for her is Whitney and Mariah. It just sort of all goes back to that. which is a function of her age, certainly, but also a function of, like I was saying earlier, obviously she realizes at a very early age that she has a very powerful voice. And so even though this is, at this point, a decade after the sort of early 90s heyday of Brian Whitney, she kind of realizes, oh, well, where am I going to put this voice? Later on in her career, she ends up finding new homes for that singing, EDM, whatever Seven Rings is. But (laughs) at that early time, it's sort of like, well, I guess I will do this because this is where this voice fits. She's also talked about she was very close with her grandparents growing up. And she talked about how her grandfather turned her on to old fashioned things. Mm. She's name checked Marlena Dietrich and Frankie Valley, which I love. I don't know how many of her contemporaries in the Nickelodeon Disney Channel universe were thinking about that kind of stuff. Yes. Which I think is a really important shaper of her aesthetic sense. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off. You know, I think also, look, do I think that Ariana had Adina Menzel posters in her room? Yes, for sure. 100%. (laughs) No question. I think two important things that I would add to that. One that I think has always been interesting to me about the Ariana, Whitney, Mariah thing is that Honestly, Ariana's a little bit young for the heyday of those artists. Ariana's in her early 30s at this point now, which means she's a few years younger than me. So at best, she experienced, at least in real time, Mariah's comeback era. But I don't know how cognizant she probably would have been of the peak Mariah era. And Whitney, by the early 2000s, was really kind of on a downward slope commercially. So that's something that I think she'd also really have to discover. The other thing that I feel like is important and sets up a lot of interesting parts of her artistry, but also like some more sticky parts of her cultural identity is she's a child of the hip hop generation. She is obviously coming of age in a moment, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s, when hip hop culture is incredibly central to mainstream pop music. This is an era where the radio is dominated by everybody from Ludacris and 50 Cent and Fat Joe and all of those artists and R&B singers like Ashanti and Jennifer Lopez and Beyonce even to some degree, Destiny's Child. So I feel like that all feels really important because Ariana's pop perspective always feels like one of her home bases is the sort of meeting point between pop music, hip hop, and R&B. Mariah obviously is an air text there as well for all of that. But I definitely feel like there's something important about Ariana as a white girl coming of age in a time when like all white kids were uncomplicatedly, so it seemed, obsessed 
obsessed with hip hop culture. I think the racial politics of Ariana Grande are a little bit more complicated than you might think. Right. For one thing, if you go back and look at interviews that she's done, the appearing and disappearing black scent yes. that she puts on, right. I think is sort of a potentially problematic aspect of Ariana that she's had the good fortune to kind of skate by. <laughs> yes. It hasn't really haunted her the way it has, say, Megan Trainer. Sure. <laughs> When honestly, having the hits really does help with that, I think. Having more than one and a half hits really helps. <laughs> it really helps. And also, I think it's fair to say that there is or has been a through line of racial ambiguity with mm-hmm. Ariana that has probably helped her. You know, it makes me think of Mariah for sure. Yes. You do not have to type many letters into the Google search bar before you can get what race is Ariana Grande. There is some obscurity about it that people are curious. What is this person's heritage and background? Right. Well, the last name. You could go in some directions with that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, I think that she has always been a very eager inhabitant of the hip hop world. I mean, she was having rappers be on her songs from the very get go. And that's sort of gone through various iterations. And she's been accused of ripping off people's flows and yada, yada. But yes, there's always been a conversation in her vocal approach between singing as a putatively white theater kid yes. and then sort of shading it with elements of kind of like more black music culture. A hundred percent. Okay, so she's on this show. She gets Kid Bubble fame to some degree from it. How does she make the pivot from being child actor to child pop star or aspiring teen pop star? What is Ariana's journey out of Victorious and the Nickelodeon world and into pop diva aspirant? So there is some music in Victorious. Yes. Won't call it a banger, but there's a song <laughs> called L.A. Boys, L-A-B-O-Y-Z, that's from Victorious. And I mean, that title alone tells you what this song sounds like. It's sort of that aggressively <laughs> cheerful, post-Hollabat girl kind of vibe. Yes. It's fine. It's yes. nothing special. Did you hear Give It Up? Oh, yes. I just want to say one quick thing about Give It Up because there's not much to say about Give It Up, but another important influence, and maybe this is the filter through which she receives some Mariah-isms, is, of course, Mariah's primary pre-Ariana acolyte, Christina Aguilera, also feels very important here. And Give It Up, to me, sounds like Ariana doing... Christina Circa Lady Marmalade. Totally. <laughs> I was seeing the assless chaps in my actual head when I was listening to that song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. A strong image. Give it up, you can't win. And so she starts, like everybody in her generation, I suppose, who wants to do this kind of work, she starts putting covers on YouTube. Hey guys, it's me, Ariana. Um, I just wanted to make you guys a video to say thank you for all of your support on Victorious. Um, I'm so happy you guys like my character, Kat. So I thought I would make you guys a song and sing you guys a video. (laughs) And by that I mean make you guys a video and sing you guys a song. Um, Okay. Anyways, I'm gonna say goodbye and got you by Alicia Keys and hope you guys like it. Some people live for the fortune 
Zombie will live just for the fame. And so the story goes, Monty Lipman, who, you know, just a, an instinctive hit maker, he runs Republic Records with his brother. Somebody shows him one of these videos and da-da-da, later on, he's like, I'm going to sign you to Republic Records. And so that's how she gets a record deal, as the story goes. And then she has this sort of false start as a pop star outside the victorious cinematic universe. This song called Put Your Hearts Up, which is kind of like, you know how Kelly Clarkson's Already Gone is like kind of a bad Beyonce halo? Yes. Put Your Hearts Up is kind of like a bad Already Gone. It's in that lineage. Feels like tertiary Ryan Tedder energy. Absolutely. With a big sample of What's Up by Four Non Blondes. It's also so funny because it's like an inspirational bring people together and heal humanity type of vibe. The number one thing I can say about it is, I mentioned this to you up top, Ariana's music, even in her era that we're going to talk about today where she's trading in more song factory style pop music, always has the feeling of bespoke or if she's getting a song factory song, she's getting the best song factory song. She's getting the top tier first offer, not the one that's been passed on by like seven other pop stars kind of song. Yes. This song is like what Demi Lovato is getting. Yes. After it's gone through seven other people, you could hear a million people singing this song and it's like bubblegum pop with no real personality to it at all. No, it's some real song factory slop. Yes, absolutely. Big seventh harmony. Seventh harmony containing the lyric, can't resurrect Gandhi, can't resurrect King, but if we put our heads together, we can do anything. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Spare us. I think the thing too is the song has no identifiable wit. I mean, I don't want to get too dramatic here, but it's kind of a betrayal of what she was doing on TV, which was knowing and which was in on the joke. And Put Your Hearts Up is just like, dude, no, there's no (laughs) self-awareness about this. You're not seeing around the corner of it. And, you know, maybe she was in her mind, but she was just trying to like do the thing to get to the place, which I can respect that. But it is not a good song. No, it's not. I have one question before we move on to the actual music that begins to like give Ariana some traction in pop. What do you think a Monty Lippman or whoever is helping shepherd this career, what do they see in her? I mean, obviously there's the voice and I want to ask you, what's the voice like? What is it that makes it so captivating and impressive? And what is it about her? There's got to be something when Monty Lippman is looking through this that he's like her. Because I mean, we all watch American Idol. We know that there's hundreds and thousands of people out there with pretty good singing voices or sometimes even great singing voices that never go anywhere. What do you think she's got going on here? We've mentioned some of the things, the knowingness, the smart, the wits, but what about the voice or about her star quality do you think feels singular even before we know where she's going musically? This is hard to know because we don't know what she was doing before she appeared to us. Right. But I think that he recognized that there was kind of a chaste throwback quality Mm, that felt mm. unique. It didn't feel like anybody else was doing that. I mean, you have to remember 
you know, this is 2013. This is blurred lines. This is wrecking ball. Right. It's sort of a raunchy moment in pop. And Ariana was the opposite of raunch, which a hit maker as clever as Monty Lipman, I think, could probably recognize, all right, this is something different. And yet she also has the voice that can put music across. Mm. So I think that's it. And then I think also, just like we were saying, I think that who else was kind of using her voice in that way at that time? Nobody else was giving you early Mariah. No one else was giving you vision of love and fantasy at that era. And so not a novel lane necessarily, but it's just a currently unoccupied lane. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me for sure. And I think the chasteness is very interesting, not just in terms of the raunch of a Miley, but in terms of also the ultra camp factor of a Gaga or a Katie. Even if it's not overt sexuality, it's like shooting whipped cream out of your boobs or it's meat dress. And I think there had been a bit of a weird curdling on both EDM at this moment, which is very interesting when we talk about Break Free in a little bit, but I think there was a bit of a fracturing moment in pop music in 2012 into 2013 in which pop can go through phases where it feels very centralized on one idea and then it will sort of lose steam and then there'll be this moment of diffuseness. And I feel like 2012 in particular into 2013 and 14 was a moment of diffuseness because the EDM bubble had burst. Every pop star from 2008 to 2012 was more or less making one type of music, dance music, 120 BPM. It was all very much focused on that idea. And also I think there was a little bit of like a curdling in the pop body politic that was sick of the antics of Gaga coming out of an egg. Like I think there was a little bit of a, maybe we want something simpler and sweeter. Just speaking to what you were saying and Ariana definitely, even though maybe she's secretly a goth queen, has that simpleness, that sweetness that maybe felt like an antidote to some of the overblown theatrics that were going to essentially burst with art pop that came out like right after this. So I feel like that also probably played a role in it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yours truly is such a throwback, like a willful throwback. It's sort of offering this vision before all of this stuff that you pop listener are sick of. I will take you back to all before all that. Okay, so let's get into that. Right before yours truly, though, is her kind of maybe sort of breakthrough, which is a duet with Mika called Popular Song that interpolates, strangely enough, given where we are currently, the song Popular from Wicked. I don't want to dwell too much on this song. I think it's kind of a nightmare. Is there anything you want to say about popular song? Does that represent her in a more meaningful way than put your hearts up? I wouldn't say it really does much for her in the sense of ushering her toward stardom. I do think that her decision to collaborate with Mika shows you that that theatricality, the flamboyance, which Mika has never had too much of a career in this country, but the true heads know... I think it shows you that she was in tune from that right from the jump. Yeah. I think a minor song, it's definitely fair to say. Yes, I really don't like this song. It's so funny because I like so much of Ariana's music, but these two openers, you really wouldn't have known what was coming, I don't think. (laughs) All right, so then the vision seems to snap into shape. 
she begins to put together, as you mentioned, this album, Yours Truly, that eventually comes out in 2013. And it doesn't really reflect either of these two songs. It seems like she wrested control somehow of this process, which, as we mentioned, not something that a pop diva on their first album generally is afforded, except in very specific situations. What is her vision exactly? And do we understand how she's able to assert that vision so clearly at such a young age and with so little provenness in the pop space? I mean, the way she tells it, yes. She talks about working on this record for literally years. Now, I found this interview from Elle in 2014, where she says if she could, she would do nothing besides just be in the studio. She wouldn't go to parties. She wouldn't go to red carpets. She would be in the studio. She's like, real studio rat. Talks about, you know, writing songs on GarageBand. Imogen Heap is like her load star at that moment, which is hilarious. So that's a good question. (laughs) I don't know how or why it is that she's allowed to craft this record in her own way at such an early point in her career. But I have to assume that at least part of it was that she came with a strong concept. As you said earlier, this is American Idol era. This is Glee era. Mm -hmm. And I think that people at Republic, the Lipman's Scooter Braun is in the picture at this point as well. He's Ariana's manager at that era. I think that these people must have seen, oh, theater kid vibes are it. And so if we can find someone who knows how to do that in a way that's slightly hipper, slightly less chained to actual show tunes, maybe there's an idea in there. And so maybe they were just convinced by the concept that she had for yours truly. Slightly hipper, slightly blacker, question mark? Absolutely. Maybe the formula is the theater kid she's cut by the perceived edge of whatever blackness she's appropriating in this style. You know, it's funny because it's evident the theater kidness from the beginning in everything that she does, it's very clear. And yet, if you're not the type for that, you don't feel alienated from this music. You definitely feel accessibility. I think that that is accessed through the way that this record, and tell me if this is how you would characterize yours truly as well. It's half early to mid 90s Mariah as she sort of morphs pop, R&B, and hip-hop together on records like Daydream and Butterfly, maybe even a little bit of Emancipation era Mariah. And then half, another sort of big influence that we haven't really noted here, which is the sort of retro wave that's ushered in by Amy Winehouse in the late 2000s, which also feels really important to setting up this record. And I remember this album being spoken about in that lineage, but you have Amy Winehouse, Adele's debut record, 21 had already come out. And then there was like Duffy and all of these mainly British women who have made a whole mini wave that was bigger in Britain, but also had exploded here thanks to like Adele and Amy, I think primarily, of music that was very specifically calling back to like mid-century, I guess somewhat rock music, but mostly R&B and soul music of that period. You got me I guess that wave didn't feel like it was cresting at that moment because I think Amy feels like the emblem of that and that was at this point quite a bit in the rear view. But that still felt kind of like a mini movement that was existing on some parts of the pop music spectrum. And I feel like half of this record is very much making conversation with that part of the pop spectrum at that moment, right? It's like half Mariah-isms, half Amy Winehouse by way of Grease. Absolutely. Grease is a good example because it's a retro thing that is going back to an even more retro thing, right? Right, right, right. So like Ariana, she's giving us memories of the early 90s R&B. And then inside that, in the song Tattooed Heart, she says, I want to say we're going steady like it's 1954. So it's like this double flashback, Mm. which I think is interesting. 
I think the Amy Whitehouse, Adele, that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of, but I can totally see, I mean, Tattooed Heart, that's totally an Amy Winehouse title could be. Also, Babyface produces half this record. Right. I do not know how it is that Babyface was convinced to sign on. I would love to know. I mean, obviously, this is somebody who's worked with some of the biggest voices to ever do it. I would love to know what his cold read on Ariana's voice was, if this was someone who he just had to work with because he just loved the voice so much, or what, I don't know. Her obsession with his era. It's gotta be that she is a connoisseur of the era of early 90s heyday babyface R&B songs. I mean, you have to imagine that Ariana is obsessed with Tony Braxton. We said she's obsessed with Whitney. These are all people that he has obviously worked with. And this again, to her smarts and musical acumen, it's honestly amazing that somebody Ariana's age would seek a babyface out that I think says a lot about Ariana. She is somebody that really knows her shit. She actually strikes me as the type of artist that is a studied person on the music that she loves and has looked at these people's music, not just in the way that they sing, but the way these records are produced. And she knows what she's talking about. So I can imagine Ariana listening to Tony Braxton's debut album and being like, this is my shit. This is very much what I'm going for in some sort of updated fashion for 2013. 100%. Perhaps my most formative Ariana Grande sort of experience or memory is, I remember seeing it at the Forum in LA. Like, I don't know, this was definitely after yours truly, maybe it was the second record, maybe the third record, I can't remember. But she had a gig that night and there was a moment that I can't remember why people thought Justin Bieber was going to come out. Right. And so the whole arena is rippling with anticipation. And at some point she's like, I have a special guest. So we're like, oh. And then she brings out motherfucking David Foster, who <laughs> I love David Foster. Earth, Wind & Fire, Chicago. I'm here for it all. But it's incredible to me that in a room of tweens and teens who are breathlessly awaiting Justin Bieber, she gave David Foster the star treatment and then he came out and they sang Whitney, I Have Nothing and she completely crushed it. It was just incredible. It shows you that she has such respect for the, the OGs. To your excellent point about Babyface, I think he was probably flattered by her interest in what he had pioneered. Yeah, and he wasn't exactly in demand at that moment. I'm not sure that Lady Gaga was calling Babyface up or Katy Perry or whatever. Totally. Let's talk about Ariana's breakthrough single, which is The Way. So this song is so explicitly referencing the 90s hip-hop vibe that it literally pulls the same sample, Brenda Russell's A Little Bit of Love that is famously utilized in the big pun hit, Still Not a Player. It's actually produced by Harmony Samuels, who I think is more of like a contemporary R&B producer of that time period, who I recognized more as someone who like worked with Sierra and stuff like that, and is written by, speaking of American Idol, Jordan Sparks. How would you describe this record? And how does Ariana sound and present herself on it? I want to get into a little bit about what the voice sounds like. What is Ariana's persona and how does she render it through how she sings? I think the persona is kind of wholesome, kind of quaint. The song has a guest verse from the rapper Matt. Miller, who she would eventually end up in a relationship with. Yes. But in his verse, he's talking about, hey, come watch a movie, American Beauty or Bruce Almighty, which is hilarious. <laughs> what a time capsule. <laughs> but I think that the idea in this song was, yes, let's find a way to contrast this 
very, very familiar big pun sample, which kind of evokes a certain rough 90s gritty energy. But let's contrast that with this high ponytail princess dress iconography that really hit in a way that I think it just put Ariana on the map immediately. People were like, okay, yes, this seems like a person who we understand. Vocal is high and fluttery. I don't know, there's something kind of floaty about it. There's also a blitheness to Ariana's singing, which she has used in different ways over the years. Sometimes I think she uses it to project a feeling of don't give a fuckness. Yeah, right. I don't think this earlier in her career, she was trying to project that kind of attitude, but there was something gripping about a song where the singer is talking about wanting to be swept away by love and swept away by romance, right. but in a voice that wasn't maudlin, it wasn't over the top. It was airy. It was light. Carefree, like literally the purest. That was a word that kept kind of coming back to me. And I think it's really interesting in her early work because I think we now think about Ariana as so defined by traumatic things that have happened to her and the way that she's responded to them. Absolutely. But in this moment, I think maybe one of her biggest strengths, but also one of her biggest struggles is the way that she sounds kind of untouched. There's this feeling of absolute effervescence. Shimmering is a word that I kept writing down. Yes. Floaty, I think, is also a really good word. There's a feeling of just absolute unencumberedness that I think was part of the appeal here. And I think that formula is so Mariah, you know, I thought about The Roof. I thought about Breakdown. I thought about a lot of Mariah's songs that very explicitly called from harder hip-hop records and then added the sort of butteriness, the smoothness of Mariah's peak era vocals. Yes. And how powerful that combination was, how innovative and smart that combination was. And very much do, I think, for a revival. I just remember feeling in this moment... This girl has a point of view that feels exciting in the wake of being pummeled by David Guetta and Calvin Harris songs for so long. There was something relaxing about this song. There was something, as you mentioned, incredibly nostalgic about this song. It felt like the opposite of the ice of the EDM era. It felt like an antidote. And I remember thinking, this really does feel like a turning point. All of these artists are searching for what's next. And I actually think Bangers is instructive here, weirdly, because even though they're very different albums, these are both women that are finding breakthrough success in this moment by going against 120 BPMs and utilizing hip-hop, recognizing the forthcoming centrality of hip-hop that's going to continue to crest throughout the rest of this decade. Both of them really like clocked in on that at that moment and that people were ready for that switch to happen. And they're doing it in very different ways. Obviously, Bangers is a garish, contemporary trap-sounding record, and this has some flourishes of contemporary trap music in the production, but as we mentioned, is much more focused on nostalgia. So I just noticed that these records coming out the same year feel like they're both answering a similar problem, which is people are tired of dance music. And the way that they were going to solve that is by incorporating hip hop elements. I mean, Lord feels instructive here as well. Another artist that is trying to find an answer to that also through some fluency with hip hop ideas. She's going for more like the Kanye Drake vibe of hip hop, but they're all utilizing hip hop to like figure out a path forward for pop. Drunken Love also comes out this year. There's like a lot of songs that I feel like orbit around that idea. That formula gets employed again on another 
another big song from this record, which is Right There, which kind of takes the same formula, aping Crush on You by Little Kim, throwing Big Sean, another future Ariana boyfriend. You were talking about how like her public narrative feels important from the jump. Yep. We've got another Ariana boyfriend. There's real Shake It Off Mariah vibes here, I think, on this song as well. And then the other big influence that becomes really important, I think almost more so on the next record, is the early 2000s Beyonce Jennifer Lopez horn sample song, which I think is most evident on the Babyface produced Baby Eye, which was actually originally written for Beyonce and sounds like somewhere between a Beyonce song and a Mariah song, Circa Like Emotions or Someday, with the musical theater lush drama theatricality layered on top of it and is a template setter I think for Ariana You know what I love also is that even on an up-tempo song like that, she's ripping vocals on every song. She is crushing this song. Like in the same way that Mariah would have crushed Someday in like 1990, Ariana is always just giving you melisma and runs, just like really wailing on these songs, even though they're snappy little mid-tempo dance numbers that you wouldn't necessarily need her to do that on. One of my great regrets is that Ariana Grande was born too late for the heyday of MTV Unplugged. Right. Mariah Unplugged is without a doubt my favorite favorite piece of Mariah musical content. It is unfucking believable And I just feel like Ariana in that setting, who knows, maybe she did one of these web versions that eight people saw. I don't know. But the classic produced Unplugged, she would have crushed it. Oh, for sure. I mean, in some ways we have yet to really get the Ariana I Have Nothing ballad. For someone who is so known for her vocal prowess and her obsession with that particular era, I mean, David Foster, I mean, like, hello. Yes. She's never really given us a traditional 90s style Love Takes Time as ballad. It's, I've always thought that's really interesting. Yes, that's why that night at the forum was so unbelievable. I was just yes. like, <laughs> I felt fortunate to be in the room to see her in her power ballad bags. Another thing to think about too about the vocal is the idea of restraint is a cliche when I'm talking about pop singing, but I do think that Ariana brings something to it. And again, it goes back to this persona that she was cultivating on Nickelodeon, this idea that she knows a little bit more than she's letting on. There's a wink there. Mm. As we've said, it's not overtly sexualized in a way that so much of the pop of that era and every other era for that matter was. But you do get the sense that this is a woman who knows what's going on. Mm. It is somehow both chaste but the persona is not naive. Agree. And I think that's a very tricky needle to thread that Ariana somehow knew from a very early point in her career she knew how to do that. Playing a character. I mean, this is the musical theater aspect of it. There's a sense of character development. A number of times on this record, I wrote down the word swoony. Maybe that's what it is as opposed to sexually charged. A song like Daydreamin', for instance, just utilizing the tropes of Grease doing the 50s to like create a sense sense of romanticism without it needing to be explicitly sexually charged but those movies are still like there is a sexual charge beneath the chase surface that makes it feel like you're not listening to kids music there's something swoony is a word i wrote absolutely
from the jump, we have a very important collaborator here that is going to play a huge role in Ariana's career and had a real moment last night, Michael, at the Grammys. Victoria Monet, songwriter, is present here on a couple of songs, one of which is the opener, Honeymoon Avenue, which is, I know, a big fan favorite, and also on Daydreaming. I just thought that that was interesting that this is an artist we all watched win her first Grammy for Best New Artist last night, and she has been in this industry and providing Ariana with a lot from the beginning, including elements of this blackness that's going to increasingly play a role in Ariana's persona and lyrical point of view and vibe. But right from the beginning, this collaboration, which almost feels as important as some of the classic collaborations we think of, like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Janet and Babyface and Tony Braxton, Victoria Monet in some ways is that person for Ariana Grande. And I think through numerous producers, through numerous eras, through numerous sounds, she is a consistent force on Ariana's music from the beginning. So I just wanted to make sure that we noted that from the beginning. Just to add on your Victoria point, because it's a really good one. I think that you can deduce from Victoria Monet's Jaguar 2, which is one of my favorite records in 2023, just so shrewd. And, you know, this is a testament to her and her collaboration with D-Mile. What they pull from the throwback, the way that they do that, the way that they flip things. When she's got the song where she talks about to the guy, you could have had this, you could have had me riding on a horse on the yeah. beach with my titties out and everything. Yeah. Like, it's just incredible. And so I wonder if Victoria's contribution to this early Ariana stuff was what provided the kind of hipness or the slight bit of coolness that kept it from being Glee or Megan Trainer. I mean, you know, whatever. Sorry. No shots at Megan Trainer, but no, take your shots. This is important here too. Megan Trainer is also happening right around the same moment as well. So maybe it was Victoria Monet who was like the vibe handler who was sort of steering the ship. Who knows? It's all lost to time. But I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea that she played a really, really instrumental role in this early music. For sure. Other notes, I mean, this record has duets with our man Nathan Sykes from The Wanted. <laughs> our man. <laughs> and Mac and Big Sean. So I think it's sort of laying the groundwork for this idea that Ariana was going to, despite her protestations that people just needed to get out of her business, it was laying the groundwork for this idea that she was always going to use her private life mm. as a thread in her narrative. I understand that she didn't end up going out with some of these guys until after the music, but I just think that the way that she sort of used these duets signals something about the way she was thinking about how to weave those things together. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, I've watched a lot of Ariana Grande music videos over the last couple of weeks. She's not really a great visual artist in my mind. I think it's really interesting that from the jump, she establishes a pretty solid image that of course has been tweaked over time, but it's the ponytail. You know, she's not really a fashion risk taker. She's not particularly edgy. She's really stuck to this one thing. And I think in some ways that's worked for her, but for artists, generally speaking, in this period who are very focused on the visual element of it, like again, I bring up Gaga and Katie and all of these people that are just preceding her. She's not particularly exciting in that way, but I will tell you, the video for The Way, which looks like it was filmed for $50,000 maybe or something like that, she and Mac have amazing chemistry. Yes. It's absolutely adorable. They are obviously totally infatuated with each other. And it was weirdly, even though it's not a great video or anything, their evident chemistry, which obviously would draw fans' interest, was very palpable. And it makes the song even more intriguing than it would be just for all the reasons that we spoke about on a musical level. Here you have two up-and-coming pop stars that are definitely into each other, and it's very fun to watch. So in speaking of the way that she makes her private life function on 
on record, I felt like that was a very good representation of an early iteration of that. I would push back on your slandering of Ariana as someone with, <laughs> with no visual sense in that. Not no visual sense, not particularly exciting visual sense. But wrap your mind around this. This is a woman who got more mileage out of changing the angle of the degree of her ponytail <laughs> than anyone ever in pop. That's for sure. She has that accolade. She could take that one to the bank. So you can sort of think, oh, okay, well, this is a master of a little will go a long way. For sure. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. I gotta say, this is a very enjoyable album. Really good. It is held up very well. I had a great time listening to it. It is a very impressive debut album. I've spent plenty of time listening to this album. I listened to it when it came out. I had a delightful time listening to this. I just thought it was so much fun, so much personality. It's quirky in all the right ways. It's a lovely listen. I'm looking at my review here as we speak, and I said, this might be the most inviting pop record of 2013. I don't know if that turned out to be right or not, but <laughs> I will commend myself for the word inviting because I think that's right. Yes. She's good company and you're happy to spend some time with her. Charming. Very charming. Can you talk a little bit about how this record establishes Ariana in the pop firmament? The thing about it is that I found interesting, especially looking back, this record is a moderate arrival, commercially speaking. The Way is a top 10 single. It is the only top 10 single. Baby I goes number 21. And that's kind of the end of the story on yours truly in terms of a commercial juggernaut. The fame, this is not one of the boys. This is not control. This is not, we've had some auspicious debuts. How does Ariana fit in, in terms of where she stands and pop in your recollection following this album as we set up her second record? You're right that it was not just an absolute smash. And you're right that it didn't spin off a long number of hit singles, but this record did hit number one, yes. which for 10, 11 years ago, I think is pretty impressive. This is at the dawn of streaming. The charts worked in a very different way for a new artist to score a number one album. The mechanics of it were just very different from today. Right. I think that what it shows you is that she was able to build a coalition, I guess, if you will, right. of people, whether it's theater kids, I don't know, Big Sean fans, <laughs> the wanted fans, if there are such people. And she was able to stitch together this coalition. She gave herself a strong base really, really quickly, which I think gave her that springboard to the next album. Yes. So let's talk about this next record because it follows in very short order. It comes out in 2014. It's called My Everything. And it's led off by a real star maker of a lead single, I would say. I mean, as much as I love yours truly, there's something quaint about it. As you mentioned, it sort of spins through the door in a light flurry and sits on the couch next to you or whatever. That is not what this is. This is problem. Uh -huh. <laughs> Ziggy 
It is very obviously aimed at heralding the arrival of a new A-list pop diva merely by looking at the credits. Of course, it is produced and written with Max Martin, the most prolific hitmaker now, I believe, of all time. How would you describe this song? How is it different than anything we had heard before from Ariana? And how does it reintroduce or broaden our introduction to who Ariana is on record or who she can be on record, I guess? It is the introduction of Ranch to her whole proposition. Right. I mean, Problem, one of the great horny sex licks yeah. that you would like to hear. A sax riff that is absolutely lewd. Absolutely. Right off the jump, the attitude is different. Yes. This isn't the woman who wants to go to the, the malt shop or whatever the fuck. She's grown <laughs> up. I mean, obviously, this is a narrative that we've seen literally countless times in pop music. This is what happens. Yes. But as always, she's doing it with a sense of humor. You can say what you want about the Iggy Azalea of it all. But I think <laughs> the song has a lovable swagger to it mm. that you can hear. And then, of course, as you say, look, anybody who's going to get the attention of Max Martin this relatively early in her career, obviously she's doing things. Yes. You know, it's a check. Max Martin doesn't want to put his name on something that's not going to go. Absolutely. To me, this song is one of the most brilliant moments in like the last decade of pop music. I absolutely think this song is so genius for so many reasons because I love when a Max Martin song is able to like really get in conversation with what that pop star's motif is. And I think Problem does that so effectively. Similar, I think, to the way he entered Taylor Swift's world on We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together a couple of years earlier where it felt like it was a Max Martinified version of something that you would think Taylor Swift would do somehow anyway, weirdly. Yes. And he's gotten better at that over time. I think Max Martin's production style has evolved from sort of Svengali to how do I morph myself on top of an already personality-driven pop star like The Weeknd or whatever. What I love about this song is it takes her kind of hip-hop and B aesthetic and gives it the biggest, most maximalist version of that possible. When I hear this song, I hear Get Right by Jennifer Lopez. I hear Crazy in Love by Beyonce. I hear One Thing by Amory. It's like a Rich Harrison <laughs> homage. Yes. That's a great call. And also a little bit Ying Yang Twins, a weight whisper song kind of vibes. Yep. It speaks very specifically to a moment that was already part of Ariana's oeuvre, but a much more bombastic version of that than we had ever heard before. And it has this absolutely brilliant anti-chorus thing. I mean, that is so smart and funny. As you said, the humor in Ariana's music is always great. That massive buildup into that whispered chorus is just so unique and so smart. Here's what I'll say about the Iggy Azalea verse. Yeah. This song is so fucking 
fucking good that it actually can't even be ruined by the Iggy Azalea verse. Damn. And that is probably the biggest compliment that one could pay to a song. <laughs> I think this song is a 20 out of 10. Like it is just so, so good. Like the definition of undeniable. And I remember when I heard it the first time I was like, oh, she's dead ass. This is serious. She's not playing anymore. And I mean, crazy thing about it is it's not the only one on this album. I think Bang Bang, which I guess technically is a bonus track on this record. I think Bang Bang is, well, I mean, to say it's the best thing that Gypsy J ever did is <laughs> faint praise. Do it like a dude with like a word. Right, exactly. It's an incredible song. I think some of the same attitudinal energy in that. Yes. You got the sense of this was someone who was just chomping at the bit, raring to go. Yes. Whatever phrase you might like. True ambition. True ambition. And there was something that was very likable about that after the more reserved quality of yours truly. It felt surprising. It felt like a true development in, as you said earlier, less than a year. Mm. One year later, this singer comes back and it's like, wow, okay, there is some serious evolution that has happened here. Just in sort of wrapping up the opening salvo of singles here, which includes Problem, which goes to number two. Bang Bang is another massive hit, I think goes to number three. And then of course, Break Free, which is produced by Max Martin and Zed. Yes. It's so funny because we were just talking about Ariana as the antidote to the EDM era. And I think it's really funny because I uh, this is my sort of galaxy brain weird theory but I kind of think Break Free is the off the wall of the EDM era oh my god what off the wall was to disco Break Free is to EDM i.e. the last call of a dominant dance genre that's incredible amazing stands on its own two feet is one of the best iterations of what that genre was doing but also is kind of like the end of something probably the last big EDM diva smash of that period and is absolutely ebullient. Like, I just love, love, love this song. What these three songs encapsulate for me is Ariana has the vocal chops to stand up to this level of bombast. I mean, these are all songs that are incredibly bombastic and over the top and like borderline camp. I mean, Problem, Bang Bang is definitely camp. Yes. And Break Free is completely over the top, very, very queer coded. The idea of making a dance anthem about breaking free, stripping away the chains that bind you. I mean, these are long tried and true iterations of gay culture that I think Ariana is incredibly important as a contemporary gay icon. She's very, very beloved by that community. And I think this song goes away in establishing that for her. Yeah, she's definitely keyed into that. There's no question about it. However, it's also worth remembering that, you know, when Yours Truly comes out, she's still on Sam and Cat, or any movie Sam and Cat is still on TV. Right. It reminds me of when Olivia Rodrigo had driver's license and still had, whatever, 17 episodes left to shoot of <laughs> High School Musical. Yes. It's like you're stuck between the two worlds. Yes. I think that my everything, and specifically Break Free, 
is Ariana literally leaving behind this Nickelodeon onus that had been on her. A hundred percent. This is her I'm coming out more than the other song on this record that actually samples I'm coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, which is called Break Your Heart Right Back. So yeah, I mean, quite a run of opening singles here. I mean, this is like a really memorable batch of songs. We can talk about maybe weirdly the most important song on this record, which I do think is her collaboration with The Weeknd called Love Me Harder. Also co-written by Max Martin. He's involved in all of these songs, notably even when other producers and songwriters are brought into the mix. It's hard to underestimate the power of a Max Martin song. This record is, I think, really, really pivotal because you were talking about goth Ariana before, like the darker edge of Ariana. That's a part of her we had never really seen to this point. And I think this is one of the great summits of modern pop music history to me because this really fed both of these people's careers in like a very powerful way. Not necessarily an expected collaboration. I think we should lay up for people now that Ariana and The Weeknd have had so many hits together. It might be hard to remember this, but at this time you have this still pretty squeaky clean. A lot of people in reviews of her at this time call her pint-sized and like mini Mariah. And there's a lot of sort of infantilizing language that's used about Ariana in this time period, which is going to play an interesting role, I think, in the framing of her next record. But The Weeknd is at this point still pre-Can't Feel My Face and is known as the, as we mentioned this word before, lutist, most drug-addled creature of the underworld of pop and R&B and hip-hop at this moment. So strange combo on paper, but I really feel like the middle ground they find on this record is the linchpin in the future of both of their careers and personas. The weekend provides Ariana with genuine edge and sex, and Ariana provides The weekend with Pop Sheen and Max Martin, <laughs> or something like that. Absolutely. Can you feel the pressure Yeah, I think Love Me Harder is an incredible song. It's like legitimately kind of gross, which works for what they're going for. You know, the lyric, feel the pressure in your (laughs) hips. Yeah, It's just a weird way of saying it. Take the pleasure, take it with the pain. Yeah. I just remember clearly when this song came out, being just so struck by how obviously she was kind of going for it with this song. A hundred percent. I mean, and it feels critical because every pop star that emerges to us as a teenager, especially in kids shows, this is the whole transition that is the hardest key to turn, I think, in a lot of careers. Yes. Many people get left in the dust here when you're perceived as a child and you're perceived as chaste. The I have sex now moment either works or it doesn't. I mean, Miley had flopped it once before she made it happen in garish fashion on bangers. You know, it's not something many pop stars can pull off smoothly. And I think that this was a very important step in that direction for her that was very shrewd it definitely feels right up to the edge of over the top for like who she was at this moment in terms of as you said some of the lyrics are definitely provocative but I remember this working like feeling like oh she's cracked something on this song that feels really important in terms of establishing her as an adult pop star so this album obviously like is the album that really establishes Ariana as a superstar you have four top 10 hits and you also have one last time as a fifth song that's also a pretty big hit that's kind of like another up-tempo EDM-ish sort of waiting for tonight esque J-Lo song. I kind of love one last time, actually. It's very tender. The tenderness of the vocal, along with the kind of sledgehammer beat, 
I think of that era, I often think of the phrase stadium rave. Like that's what I think of like the Zed kind of thing. Yes. One Last Time is one of my favorite stadium rave songs from that era. It's a beautiful song. I love it. I love that. Two things I'll say about it is this record is diffuse in a way that yours truly was not. This record tries everything. It's all over the place. I mean, the singles are amazing. There's a lot of good songs that I actually like a lot on this record. I mean, Be My Baby, produced by Casimir Cat, is one of my personal favorites. Aside from the sort of diffuseness with some of this music, I was struck by the lyric, head in the clouds, got no weight on my shoulder from problem in the sense of, I do think as great as this music is, there's a version of Ariana in this time period that feels almost like she floats above everything that happens to her in her life, in her music. Not detachment per se. There's no grit. There's sometimes like a lack of friction or something like that. I wonder if that rings true to you at all. Well, I guess. And I think that that, I mean, not to jump ahead here, but I think that quality that essential quality to her vocal is why what happened in a few years, which we'll come back to, but Manchester and Mac Miller and all this stuff, I think that's why it was so transformative in how we thought about Ariana because she had established this idea as a woman who just sort of floats above it all, is just unbothered. Yes. And then there's this huge break between the next record and Sweetener that just completely realigns how we think about Ariana Grande. Right. So, yes, I agree with you that in this era, there is something unbothered about her whole approach. Yes. The urgency is from the desire to sing as opposed to an emotional undercurrent. The thrust of the persona and the music is in the love and joy of singing, but not from like a deeper rooted place of emotional drama or melodrama or whatever that grounds some of the most powerful pop music that I think we have. And I enjoy these songs and I had a great time listening to my everything. But, you know, sometimes tragedy and these massive personal narrative events I think about Rihanna and being physically assaulted. Yes. A terrible, awful thing that no one would ever wish on anyone in the same way that you wouldn't wish a terrorist bombing on anybody. But there's a, I don't want to say it's a lack of depth because that feels dismissive, but I find myself tempted to say that. Well, I think what you're picking up on is the vestigial theater kid. Right. This is someone who came up putting on a show. The show was the thing. I think Ariana, she's certainly not the only one, but she had to almost back into the emotional content of her music yes, because the formal skill, the formal presentation, that was what came early. That came naturally because yes. pop music is just another thing to put on in the same way that she'd put on Cinderella or Wicked or whatever it was. Yes. And again, this is why her celebrity narrative is so interesting because the music accrued meaning as she became a public figure. Right. Which isn't always how it happens, but I think it's definitely how it happened with Ariana. Absolutely. I think that makes so much sense. I mean, and this is again is stuff that we'll get into in more depth in next week's episode, but how much of the depth and feeling that we feel from Ariana's music post Manchester, post Mac dying is in the music itself, which I think it, it is, but also in the super narrative that surrounds the music and like what we imbue in the music from the super narrative. Again, that feels super similar to Rihanna. A lot of parallels there for me. I was just left with this feeling of the point of this is the singing. And I thought that that was just really interesting. She never feels like she breaks a sweat. She never feels like anything really gets her. That's an interesting paradigm for a pop star and pop music, which often thrives on tension and melodrama. I think you're 
right about that. And yet, now that I'm thinking about it and we're talking about it, I think maybe the reason that I love One Last Time so much is because it's kind of an exception to that. Yes, I hear that. I do get a lot of emotion from that vocal. It's very yearning. And so I do think that that is maybe the exception here. Yes. It's less of a stylistic romp. Yes. And it's more like we're really just hearing from Ariana. Yes, absolutely. Last thing I want to say, and then I'll just get any straight thoughts you have here, is the title track is the formation of like a dream team. The title track is produced by Tommy Brown, who I think was also involved in the first record, but becomes a very important producer later in Ariana's work, especially on Thank You Next and Positions. Victoria Monet and Taylor Parks, who are, we talked about Monet, but Taylor Parks is another really important songwriter that comes into play on a lot of later Ariana music. And also, I think the beginning of music that you don't really hear a lot of on this record that becomes Ariana's calling card, but which are these kind of minimalist, moody R&B songs. I guess something maybe she's borrowing from alt R&B stars of a mid-decade like uh, Tanache or Kailani or even SZA in her early formation. There's a certain way that Ariana songs are going to start sounding at a certain point that isn't evident on these bombastic Max Martin songs, really. But this kind of slight, moody R&B music that becomes, I think, also very important to Ariana's future music. Absolutely. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Ariana was certainly listening to Tinashe and SZA and was very aware of what was going on in this slightly, whatever, cooler world than where she had kind of landed. Yes. Okay, so... My Everything, massive success. This is really, I think, the arrival moment as we think of it for Ariana as the A-list pop star. And interestingly enough, we've talked a little bit about Ariana and like the very serious events that transpire between Dangerous Woman and Sweetener. But Ariana's actual first scandal occurs following this record. And let me tell you, it is a doozy. And I know everyone's going to remember it as the most seismic and scandalous moment in pop history when Ariana Grande licks a donut and says she hates America. Michael, do you remember this? How have you been able to continue to be a fan of Ariana's after such an egregious event? I am a fan of Ariana because of this egregious (laughs) event. I mean, a couple things. One, I feel like I'm mourning a lost world when this was the outrage of the day. Like, what a better time. Do you know what I mean? I completely agree. Low stakes, baby. Yes. This was very in conversation with Justin Bieber peeing in the bucket and then giving the finger to a picture of Bill Clinton. Yes. Twin sins. (laughs) Twin sins. So for people who don't remember, if there are somehow any such people, this was 2015. (laughs) Ariana Grande is in a donut (laughs) shop in Southern California with the boyfriend who was a dancer, Ricky Alvarez. This is uh, one of her rare non-famous boyfriends. Yes. And they're in a donut shop. This is TMZ. You know, this is like the Er, Morgan Wallen video. TMC just out here catching people in 4K for a decade. In the donut shop, just quietly saying they hate America to their boyfriend who's a dancer. And she licks these donuts and suggests that she's disgusted by the conspicuous display of sugary treats. And so obviously this is a disruption of how we've thought about Ariana. Yes. And this causes a huge controversy. She 
does a, an apology. I can't remember if it was a, a notes app, but probably notes app and says, I am extremely proud to be an American. <laughs> I've always made it clear that I love my country, which is great. And then she tries to spin it, <laughs> she tries to spin it and says that she is just concerned because she's an advocate for healthy eating. And sometimes she gets upset <laughs> by how freely Americans consume things. All I can say about this event is that the fact that this was as big of a scandal as it was only highlights that no matter how many times The weekend had said, accept the pleasure and the pain, we still thought of Ariana as literally a baby. Yes. The fact that this was seen as such a big deal is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. If Billie Eilish did this today, like no one would give two flying fucks. If someone saw Olivia Rodrigo in a donut shop saying she hates America, we'd all be like, yes, queen, same, you know? It would be a crucial part of the lore. Yes. And somehow this threatened to undo Ariana, which is, I don't know. Honestly, we've come a long way since 2015 and it's in some ways a terrible long way and maybe in some ways good enough that we could accept that maybe people have less than positive feelings about America and want to lick a donut. Okay, so she drops a kind of failed lead single from her follow-up record, which we don't have to spend a ton of time on, that's called Focus, which is basically like a problem reiteration, more or less, that's supposed to presage a third record that's called Moonlight. Again, that really fits smoothly into the Ariana making Grease songs kind of vibe, I guess. The song doesn't do particularly well, and the album gets re-envisioned and eventually becomes 2016's Dangerous Woman, which is the last record we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, we've talked a lot about the sort of de rigueur, especially female pop star, I have sex now narrative. How does Ariana Grande attempt to utilize the Dangerous Woman era, either visually or through her music, to present herself as a fully embodied sexual being? And is it successful on those terms to you? The how is a black pleather (laughs) rabbit sex mask. Indeed. Which, I mean, you just have to appreciate the assertiveness there. Sure. Is it successful? I mean, sure. Look, Dangerous Woman is, although I think that Ariana is actually one of our more subtle and nuanced pop divas, there is something appealing about the absolute just lunk-headed obviousness of Dangerous Woman, just as a concept, (laughs) as an idea, (laughs) as a post-donut flex. Not post-donut. I mean, not to make too much of the iconography, but I do think that that was actually possibly more impactful than the music in that era. Mm, Was the image shift. The sort of sexy bunny costume really (laughs) went a long way to offering a new imprint. I think that that image really stuck in people's minds in a, I think, useful way, you know, if it's the record's called Dangerous Woman. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I have so many minds about this record because I think one thing that you're gesturing at that I think is so interesting is I think the dirty little secret about Dangerous Woman is it's not as big as my everything. Yeah. It's obviously made to be as big as my everything. It is eight Max Martin songs at this point and everyone seems scientifically engineered to like hit a different sweet spot of pop at this exact moment and of Ariana's artistry to this point. We're getting the full array. I mean I love this album. I think this album is kind of nothing but hits. Every song is great but it is not the juggernaut that my everything is. 
things. And in fact, I think the sort of fumble of focus points to a bit of a messy takeoff. It's got the lead single, as you were sort of talking about, which is the title track, Dangerous Woman, which is a rock ballad of some sort. Yeah, no, it is kind of a power ballad. Just getting into some of that weekend vibe again. Yep. Makes me want to do things that I shouldn't, that kind of stuff. I will say, Michael, I want to frame this all through the vibe of how much I enjoy these songs. There's something almost funny about it. Like this song almost makes me laugh because it almost feels like a kid telling you that they're dangerous. Ariana Grande in this era does not give the impression of danger in any conceivable way. No. Voice still pure as snow. I wrote down in my notes, imagine Rihanna singing this song. Like, yes. Rihanna gives you dangerous woman. Ariana not giving me dangerous woman. Even though I love this song and I love the way that it gives her a chance to sing, this era had some incongruousness in that way for me. Like it definitely had that feeling of the pop star asserting to you that they are sexual now and sort of telling not showing in a sense. I think you have to read Dangerous Woman as, I'm not going to say, a comedy record but i think that you have to <laughs> you have to hear it as a funny song right and i think as always with ariana i do think she's in on it i think that she understands it's camp i mean as we said with some of the stuff from the previous record i think she's aware of that right and she's just leaning into it yes i agree if rihanna did it it would not be funny not to say rihanna can't do funny but the emotional register would be totally different i think when ariana does it there is a comic element to it i agree and also she famously went on snl in this time period and like literally made a joke about how it's time for her to have a scandal. She did a whole skit about knowingly saying, this is the period of my pop star trajectory where I need to be a bad girl. There is a line that says, ain't you ever seen a princess be a bad bitch? Yes, on bad decisions. Yeah. I mean, there you go. <laughs> That's the log line for this whole album. For sure. If you want it, but you got it, ain't you ever seen a princess be a bad bitch? But this is home to some of the best songs of the pre-idiosyncratic Ariana Grande musical oeuvre to me. Into You, which is the second single. I don't know a better pop song than this song. This song goes so freaking hard. Honestly, a little bit Gimme More yeah. is one of the things that comes to mind for me. Maybe a little bit Robin too. The lyric, a little less conversation and a little more touch my body. So good. Incredible. Just a sledgehammer of a chorus. I love the contrast between the sort of minimalist production and singing on the verses. that then goes into like medium drive in the pre-chorus. And then the hook just hits you like a sledgehammer. Yes. This is Max Martin, all cylinders, no notes on the song. I love, 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 love this song. Same. I think that she's so good for someone who came into the world in an R&B lane. She turns out to be a great club pop 
singer. Yes. And I don't know if anybody saw that coming, how good she would be in these kinds of productions. Yes, agree. And I think this song comes the closest of any song on this record to feeling actually moist. Totally. There's something here that feels like a dirty little orgasm. It's the song that I think hits what Dangerous Woman is trying to be the most squarely on the head. I don't particularly love the actual biggest hit from this album, which is Side to Side, a kind of light reggae song with Nicki Minaj. I think that's a serviceable record that I think saved this album commercially but like has never been really a favorite Ariana song a song about being essentially fucked so hard that you can't walk so she's definitely going for the theme I am with you. I do not love side to side. Although I do, you know, wrist icicle, ride dick bicycle. (laughs) There are some keepers in here. But yes, side to side always felt a little forced to me. Yes. I do remember one VMAs, Grammys, I can't remember. There was one award show performance where they were sort of on side by side. Spin bikes. Yeah, which that's iconic. I mean, that's an indelible image, which I am grateful for. For sure. And honestly, as we mentioned, not necessarily her strong suit is visuals that have really stuck, stuck. I mean, I guess the bunny costume and the ponytail. Some of the best songs on this record, though, to me are kind of like buried in the track list. And some of the ones that feel the most important and instructive to who Ariana will become. I was thinking a lot about Be All Right, which is, I think, like a buzz single that's kind of a 90s Chicago house nodding song that feels very, very, very table setting for the future of Ariana music in the sense that post-tragedy Ariana, the way that she finds a unique POV as a creature that is viewed as kind of wounded is by not singing like maudlin ballads, but by sort of searching for light, searching for healing. Music that is very preoccupied with the idea of self-love through pain and trauma and self-care. Yeah. And it's often sw- swaddled in production that feels light as air, almost like borderline elevator music. It almost feels like it's gossamer. Yeah. And I think that this record speaks to that formula most clearly than anything that we had heard to that point. Like this is a version of an Ariana song, both in theme and aesthetically, that will become very, very integral to her next run of three albums, I think. Midnight shadows with finding is a battle but daylight is so close so don't you worry about a thing we're gonna be This song feels really, really important to the future of her. And also, I think that style of music almost makes her like the inverse Janet early phase where it was like, Janet is a delicate light singer who like used these sledgehammer industrial funk beats to kind of offset that. And Ariana, I think, finds a real singular aesthetic in having a big bombastic voice that she puts on top of a very featherweight, minimalist, cushiony sound. That song feels like a linchpin moment for her in my mind. I had not thought about the sort of ways that Ariana carries on Janet's lineage, but that is an excellent point. I mean, I think this record too is also, I enjoy it because she reached a level of success where she could start pursuing some of her more oddball impulses. Yes. There's a song with Macy Gray on here. Yes. Which, I mean, sure. Absolutely. It's yes. maybe not the greatest song, but I no. totally respect the insanity of it. Agree. There's also a song with Future, which I'm not saying that you don't get to Taylor Swift endgame without Ariana Grande every day with Future, but 
I mean, it's possible, you know? And where would we as a culture be without Taylor Swift's endgame? A poorer society. I agree. I think the song Greedy, which is a really fun disco record. Oh, this is my jam. Your Tate McRae could never. Never, never. This is Camp Ari at peak Camp Vegas. Gay as hell. And also, like, maybe another song where she finds a way into the sexuality that feels more organic to her than some of the, like, rare stuff. It's, like, insatiable lust in, like, a gay, campy way that I think is, like, a good look for Ariana. Great song. Really, really fun. And then there's a song called I Don't Care on this record, which was a total deep cut. But I hear it as it's basically Ariana doing Soul Quarian's D'Angelo Untitled. Mm. Really, really going for it. You know, it's a beautifully sung retro Prince ballad. It's not, as we were saying earlier, Ariana, for some reason, never really get goes for these huge vocal moments, but I don't care gets closer than she often does. It's a really, really good song kind of buried on this album. Yes. Yeah, love that song. The last one I want to say that's just like a real personal fave of mine is the bonus track, New Better Forever Boy, which is like a diptych two-part song that really feels in conversation with the kind of alt R&B of this moment. I hear Tinashe, I hear Kalani, I hear definitely Ariana's obsession with the sort of bubbling alternative R&B space of this moment. If you know And I think it speaks to kind of one of the last topics I want to talk about with you today, which is there's some personal lyrics here that strike me. I feel like it's not something that Ariana trades a lot in in this early music. And it's so funny because now we think of Ariana as super almost internal and idiosyncratic in the way that she talks about her emotional life. And that's become such a huge part of her post-Manchester music. But at this point, it was interesting looking back. This song has lyrics about never been with a boy for more than six months. I couldn't do it. Couldn't get used to it. Ain't nobody ever keeping my attention. There's a feeling a little bit more of like a diaristic nature to the song in particular. And it made me realize that through this entire run of albums, you don't really get to know her on that deeper level. And I think it goes back to what I was saying a little bit about my everything. Ariana is in this era, an incredible vessel for these incredible song factory songs in many ways. Yes, she has her unique point of view. We talked about it with yours truly. We talked about some of the things that she brings to this music. It's not like she doesn't have authorship on these records, but I definitely do not see sense that she's come into herself as a songwriter in the way that like we sort of know her today. Does that resonate for you? Absolutely. I'm not saying that Ariana Grande has reminded me of Casey Musgraves before this conversation, but <laughs> as you were talking, what I'm thinking about is Casey, if you are a close listener and if you've listened to her speak, she is someone who, when she started out, was so concerned with craft and was so concerned with making the songs as tight as possible and as pointed a version of what she was doing and had to kind of relax into the idea of writing a 
about her life in a more impressionistic or diaristic or whatever way. It wasn't her natural instinct. And I think Ariana, as a musical theater kid, as we've said a couple of times, she was so fixated on the presentation and on the packaging mm. that I think she had to find a way to relax into a version of pop songwriting that was more, I don't know, evocative of ideas floating through her mind at any given moment. Yes. As I mentioned up top at the beginning of the conversation, she has a real facility with the way that we speak the way that we think, the way that we text and write on the internet and how to like put that into music, that's not here yet. No. That's not part of this music to me. That comes into form in the next sweep of albums. But the parallels with Rihanna are very interesting to me in this, in terms of her career trajectory. Like here you have somebody that in some ways I think she picks up the baton from Rihanna and she becomes the vessel for all the greatest pop producers of this moment to come in and give her the best songs that are out there in pop music that are made for her, they're tailored for her, but you can feel the overhand of the people in the studio with her. Whereas increasingly through her more recent work, you feel the Ariana Grande singularity in terms of how she approaches making her music, writing her music, having her music produced, whatever it is. That has not taken shape yet. And in a similar way, there are these intervening huge unexpected public tragedies that set the stage for that shift in how we conceive of these people. And so where I want to leave us off essentially is what happens? I mean, we've gestured at this a little bit, but Ariana's basically on on tour for this record and her concert gets bombed in a terrorist attack in 2017. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most horrific things that you could ever imagine a performer having happened to them. Yes. It's in Manchester, England in 2017 and terrorists bomb the show as people are leaving. 22 people die, more than a thousand are injured. It's an unimaginable scenario. Yes. And Ariana kind of withdraws, as you can imagine, and she puts up a note that just sort of gestures at how guilty she feels for having gathered these people in a place where this would end up happening. Mm. And then interestingly, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about this until we were going to do this episode that she plays this concert, this benefit concert in Manchester. And in my mind, I would have thought it was six months later, a month later, something like that. Mm. It was just weeks later. Wow. It's in Manchester. It's Ariana. It's Take That, the UK boy band. It's Miley Cyrus, Pharrell, mm -hmm. Nile from One Direction. I remember watching this on a live stream and being really, really moved Same. by how obviously I would never say that it turned out to be a great thing for Ariana's work, but it actually does turn out to be the case that she turns out to be a songwriter who is really capable of tapping into this kind of emotion and pain to make great art. Yes. There's no way to assess the value proposition of that, but it is an interesting consequence of this horrific event. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that I find the hardest to talk about in these conversations is the link sometimes between unimaginable tragedy and amazing work and the way that it can change how we view these people, change what they do, change the role they play in our imaginations, in our culture. But I don't think there's any way of getting around that. I mean, this event changed who Ariana Grande was. Yes. Who knows where her career goes without this? I mean, it's impossible to imagine an alternative universe, but I tend to feel like just from studying pop stars like I do, and that's been always my fascination. At a certain point, it's usually about the point that Ariana is right at this moment. You've got to find a way to like deepen and broaden. Yes. You have to deepen what you do. You have to broaden the scope of what you do. Otherwise, you become the type of pop star that is like a big deal for five or six years and you have a few big albums and you're Paula Abdul and it's over. That is what happens. And only a very select few find a way into finding new and intriguing formations for their artistry and 
place and culture that keep us interested. And I don't want to pontificate on whether Ariana would have uncovered another way to access that without this tragedy happening. Of course, that is horrible. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But like, it's now impossible for me to think of Ariana Grande as the pop star that I think about her today, if not for the way that this affects her narrative and work. I can't separate it. I literally think Ariana music is split into everything that happens before this and everything that happens after it. I absolutely agree. I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. What would Sweetener or whatever would have become Sweetener? What would that record have been like yeah. if this had been an alternate timeline? Yeah. And it is very difficult to imagine, which is a indication of how pervasively what happened penetrated everything that she went on to do. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that that lands us where we need to get today, Michael. Sure. I have one last question for you before we get out of here. What is an underrated Ariana Grande song from this time period that we've discussed today, something we have not talked about, or at least not talked about in depth, that we could send the show out on. I think I gotta go with Break Your Heart Right Back, okay. which is in some ways one of her worst songs, I guess. <laughs> For one thing, it has Childish Gambino on it, which is among the stranger features she's done. Yes. But it's also great in that, you know, she's done this a couple of times. She samples a well-known song that samples a well-known song. Yes. In this case, she samples the Biggie song that samples the Diana Ross song. Yeah. And I think that she's showing, again, Ariana's a great pop fan. Yes. And I can't say for certain that she wanted to make some point about the fine legacy of Nile Rodgers' guitar licks. But I like to think that that's what's going on here. I like to think that. Yes. I love that. Yes, I think Ariana, musical historian, threading the needle between 1979 or whatever and 1996 and 2014. Let's give it to her. I want to give it up to her. She's a smart girl and she knows her shit. And I think that that's a big part of what defined a lot of the great music that we talked about today. So I think Break Your Heart Right Back is a fantastic song for us to go out on. Michael Wood, thank you so, so, so much for doing this. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, so there you have it, part one of our Ariana Grande series. I want to say thank you so, so much to the fabulous Michael Wood for being such a great guest. And of course, to Russ Martin for everything that he does to make the show happen every week, PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. We will be back next week with part two of this series. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ XIV on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous on March 9th in Bushwick at the Sultan Room and on March 23rd at Los Globos in Silver Lake. And come to our live show, Pop Pantheon Live, Tortured Poets and the State of Taylor Mania at the Bell House in Brooklyn on April 22nd. Tickets for that are available in the show notes of this episode. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. No, they hate, but I don't know I, uh. I know the way he did you was whack, but I know how you can get through right back. <laughs>